Galatians chapter 2. So many things that we've done this morning in prayer and in praise and hymns, the reading of Scripture. So much this morning have actually bore witness to our text this morning in Galatians chapter 2, subject of brotherly rebuking, that it amazes me whether it was Ecclesiastes of two or better than one, for if one falls, the other one shall lift him up. Also to the king, not bearing admonishment, even to the singing of Psalms 101 and the others often stating, letting us know about the requirements and the blessings of are being able to watch over one another as brothers and sisters in Christian love for one another. So therefore, I want to kind of preach on that subject this morning as the Lord gives me liberty. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, down through verse 14. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to blame to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation or the hypocrisy. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Let us pray. I pray, Father, now that you bless the reading and the preaching of thy word. May you, Lord God, I pray, guide us and direct us in this most blessed and often confusing subject. Give us, I pray, understanding. For, Lord, the unity and the love amongst your children are greatly dependent upon the subject of rebuking and receiving rebuke. And, Lord, it can heal so many divisions. I just pray that, Father, Lord, you'd help us, guide us and direct us, Spirit of God. Help us to see this truth and apply it in our own hearts and our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> As I studied this past week for this passage of Scripture, I thought to myself how fitting it is that we should examine such a subject this morning in the light or in the shadow of our partaking of the Lord's Supper, where we are exhorted to remember the great sacrifice of our Savior to save and redeem us from our sins. And yet, whenever we find ourselves facing a brother or sister in sin or fault, we must always do so not only with great meekness and humility, considering, like Paul says later in this epistle, considering ourselves lest we also be tempted while taking heed lest we think we stand, only to find ourselves falling. 
But also, we should always, when we come to face a brother or sister in sin, and we are biblically required by God's Word to admonish and to rebuke a brother and sister in sin. I wish to emphasize that. It's a biblical requirement. It's a responsibility. It's an accountability which we as Christians should seriously take and consider. But whenever we're facing such a situation, whether we're the one being rebuked or whether we're the one rebuking, we must always do it in the light and understanding of our own great need of Christ's continual mercy and grace for our own sins and infirmities. Ever being reminded that our brother has but a splinter while we have but a beam. It's important, I believe, that we understand our subject this morning of rebuke and receiving rebuke because I believe with my whole heart that much of the divisions and schisms today found amongst God's people is because we are not handling this subject correctly or biblically. I believe we'll all agree, most of us have been saved long enough, to understand that there are going to be differences between believers. We have a unity in Christ. We have a bond, a tie between us because of Christ's salvation. We are one body in Christ, yes, but I believe we all understand we all have differences and sometimes we all make mistakes. We all have faults. Some times, unfortunately, we often fall into sin. And I believe a lot of the divisions and schisms we have today amongst God's people could be prevented if we properly, biblically exercised this divine responsibility of rebuking and restoring and reconciling a sinful and erring brother or sister. For when we fail in this, I wish to bring to your remembrance the words of Proverbs Chapter 18, verse 19, a brother offended is harder to be won than strong city. It doesn't say a brother rebuked, a brother that's offended. In other words, when we rebuke a sinning brother or sister, we're in danger of offending them, not helping them. We've got to be careful of that. And their contentions are like the bars of a castle. So it is biblically important that you and I as Christians understand the scriptural instructions God gives us when we're faced with rebuking someone who has fallen into sin or us receiving such rebuking. Which brings us this morning to the third and final example of Paul's manner of dealing with those in the church, be they the weaker brethren, as we've seen a couple of weeks ago, be they false brethren, or those brethren who have fallen into sin and error. And so I want to cautiously and yet hopefully faithfully declare this subject this morning in hopes it will help our church, because we will be, if we haven't already, 
we will be faced with this issue because we all make mistakes. We all fall. We all make errors. And I hope and pray that God would give us much grace because I believe our unity as believers are much dependent on how we deal with differences. Everyone speaks of loving one another as Christ loved us. Yet how does Christ love us? We sang it in some of them songs that Christ mercifully, graciously forgives us. He's always there. Oh, we're always boasting how God is so quick to forgive us and that we can come to Him with our sins and our faults and we can confess them. And He is readily, readily, readily agreeable and willing to forgive us. And yet to love one another as Christ loved us is also being willing and ready to forgive and even rebuke a brother or sister, if need be. For even God says, if I chasten you not, your bastards are not my sons. So chastening from God is out of love, so rebuking must also be out of the same source of love Christ has for us. And again, I want to emphasize the important fact that it is a responsibility, it's a divine given responsibility especially if we're older in the Lord or more knowledgeable in Scripture, it is our responsibility to admonish and rebuke a sinful or erring brother. To be silent is a greater sin, as we'll see later on. But we need to know how to do that in a way which not only glorifies God, but in a way which brings reconciliation and restoration not division, not schism. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. Now, we must understand this was no minor offense on Peter's part. This was no small act of hypocrisy, if there could ever be such a thing as a small act of hypocrisy. This was no small act of hypocrisy, but one which demanded a strong and stern rebuke from Paul. He says that even in his own, I was stood him to the face. I didn't hide this rebuke. For in this act of the hypocrisy, Peter and the others who followed him, Paul says we're guilty of not walking uprightly, uprightly with integrity, according to the truth of the gospel. A sin, which I believe Paul explains in our text, which was in direct alliance with the sin of the Judaizers, who in verse 4 were brought in privately or privily that they might bring the believers into bondage, threatening the very liberty the believer has in Christ. So, uh, this sin of Peter and the other believers and not walking uprightly according to the truth of the gospel was very much in alliance with the Judaizers. So this was no minor error. This was no minor act of hypocrisy. This was a major issue for the church and the gospel. I withstood him, Paul said, to the face. Because he was to be blamed. Now, though they were all guilty of being carried away with their hypocrisy, their dissimulation, 
Paul says that later on in verse 14. Notice how Paul would place the greater blame on Peter. I stood face to face with Peter because he was to be blamed. And I touched on this a little bit last week, and I'll only briefly touch on this again so I can move on. But he addresses Peter as having the greater blame. And that's properly so. Because of all the believers, Peter was a pillar of the church. He was a leader. And therefore carried the greater responsibility. Now please pay heed to Paul's exhortation here. His rebuking of Peter. Peter bore the greater responsibility because of his position in the church. For unto whomsoever, our Lord said in Luke 12, for so unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. Listen closely. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. That was our Lord's words in Luke chapter 12 in regards to not just possessing knowledge, but accountability. If God gives you more, then God holds you and I more responsible. If men commit unto us more, then men hold us more responsible. James says along that same line in James chapter 3, verse 1, he says, My brethren, be not many masters or teachers or instructors regarding the Word of God. Why? Knowing that ye shall receive the greater condemnation. In other words, you have a greater responsibility. You, uh, you'll enter the greater judgment. Now, why is that important? I hope you'll see that. Many there be who boast of the abundance of knowledge they possess of Christ and Scripture. And over the years I've run into many. And not just simply those who are pillars in the church, if I can use that phrase, or leaders in the church, but many Christians who even sometimes boast of their knowledge being more than that of the pastor or the elders. Many boast of the abundance of knowledge they possess of Christ and Scripture, yet few there be who truly understand the measure of responsibility and the accountability which comes with such knowledge both before God and man. Both before God and man. If God gives you much, He requires much. If men commit unto you much, then men require of you much. So before God and men, a lot of times... People who boast of their knowledge of Scripture don't take that into accountability that you're going to be held responsible for that, whether you're a pillar in the church or not. I say that because there are many who take the liberty of being hard or harsh or unmerciful when it comes to rebuking or reproving a brother or sister in sin because they believe they're not in the position of leadership or authority in the church. And so, therefore, they falsely believe that they do not fall under such accountability. I'm not the pastor, so it doesn't matter. I can come up to you and boldly tell you anything. I'm not held accountable for that. I beg to differ, and Scripture differs. It differs. Now, though there is some truth to that, that a pastor or elder or leaders in the church bear a greater responsibility, there is an essence of truth in that. 
Yet everyone, listen to me, everyone to whom God by His grace has allowed to grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there comes with that a great accountability. So don't boast that you have a lot of knowledge in Scripture and don't take an accountability that God will hold you responsible. Not simply because you're not a leader in the church, but because God has given you the grace to grow in that grace and in the knowledge of our Lord. So be very careful. God will hold each and every one of us accountable. Even Paul says it in Romans 14, 12, for every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. So, with that said, you don't have to be a pillar in the church or a leader in the church to bear the accountability of knowledge. If God grants you much grace and wisdom in Scripture, be careful when it comes to this subject, especially the subject of rebuking or reproving a brother or sister in sin. With that said, let us examine more closely Paul's rebuking of Peter. And that beginning with a word of caution before we begin his public rebuking of Peter. And this word of caution is this, and listen closely, there is always a danger of imbalance when it comes to our responsibility in rebuking a brother or sister in sin or fault. There's a danger of imbalance. What do you mean by that? For either we are too lenient or too intolerant or tolerant and allow them to continue in their sin thinking, well, no, I don't want to offend them. I don't want to hurt them. And love covers a multitude of sins, so I'll just remain silent. That is a greater evil than speaking out. Do you know that? Because you're then held accountable before God. Well, I'm not the preacher. Has nothing to say with that. Has nothing to do with that. If you or I are aware of a brother in fault or sin, we cannot push the responsibility upon somebody else. If God makes us aware of that, if we see that, you can see that in Matthew 18, which we'll look at later, where the Lord said, if you know your brother has ought against you, you go to him. And you talk to him. Put your lay your offering down. Go to him. Get things right with your brother. No, we're we're all accountable for that. But we got to be careful because there's a danger of imbalance. We we tend to be too lenient and too tolerant. We just think, no, love. I'm just going to let him take his course, and hopefully God will just show it to him. I'm not saying that we shouldn't give it much prayer before we approach the brother, but we should be careful that we're not too lenient. That's not love. Do you know that? Save for the wounds of a friend. The wounds of a friend. We're either too lenient or we're too harsh and unmerciful, allowing no room for repentance, wherein the repenting brother can be like the young man in Corinthians, be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. And believe me, I've been on both sides of that fence in the last 40 years myself included, and others. We become too harsh and too unmerciful, and we don't allow uh, repentance to take place. We're, we don't forgive. We've got to be careful that we maintain a balance. Let me show you what I mean. Look in Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Do you see Paul's wording in this again? It's amazing. Romans chapter 15 in verse 13. Paul says here, 
He said, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of which you're full of goodness and filled with all knowledge. You see that? Full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. What leads that admonishment? Well, he says you're full of goodness and filled with knowledge. So you see, there has to be a balance there. Goodness and knowledge allows us to admonish biblically. I withstood him, Paul said, to the face before them all. Now, I want us to notice, first of all, in Paul's rebuking of Peter, that Paul's rebuking of Peter was openly, it was publicly before them all, the Bible says. And we need to take that in consideration for uh, some have been confused by Paul's manner or choice of his rebuking of Peter. Would, should not have Paul went to him first privately? As Matthew requires us? We don't read anywhere where Paul went to Peter first and said, Peter, I just want to pull you to the side, let you know you did wrong. No, there's a valuable lesson here concerning how we as believers are to deal with the rebuking of the sins and faults of other brethren. And we need to be reminded of that. We need to know that. Paul doesn't take Peter to the side, and we'll look at that in a minute, because what he did was open. His, his sin, which he did, influenced others publicly, openly, and therefore it required an open rebuke. There's a difference. You know, I'm going to show you those three differences, or three certain different situations of rebuking or censuring a fallen or sinful brother. First, there are some sins or faults which must first be rebuked or addressed privately. Okay? In secret between two brethren. Before, if no reconciliation can be gained, they bring it to others. Matthew chapter 18. I won't go into reading that text because of time, but I think we're all familiar with that text. If a brother has aught against you, you're coming to the altar. You have your gift. If you know your brother have aught against you, you put it down, put your offering down, you go and you reconcile things with your brother. It's the brother that's been offended that goes to the brother that's offended. It's amazing, that process there. Amen. Well, I'm not going to go to him. They need to come to me. They hurt me. No, you go to them. If you're a wise man, if you're an older brother, if you're a knowledgeable one in Scripture, you know that if he's blinded by his ignorance and his sin, that you're responsible to go to him. Now, you go to him privately, Paul says, or the Lord said, and you try to reconcile things between you two. Why? We should not be in a speed or we should not be desirous to publicly open our brother's sins against us publicly. That, that's wrong. We should try to do the best we can to keep it under one roof, so to say. Love covers a multitude of sins. So there are some censures, some rebukes, that we're required to go to the brother privately. And in a sense, every time we rebuke somebody, there's an essence of Matthew 18, which must be applied. But I believe a lot of Christians misapply 18 when it comes to, like, Paul's example of Peter. I believe they misuse that example as well to the second situation of which I want to bring to your attention. Secondly, the accusations against an elder. 
the Bible says must be before two or three witnesses, 1 Timothy 5.19. So here we have an elder who someone has an accusation against for doing wrong or fault. Paul says, no, there must be two or three witnesses. It's a little different, isn't it, from what Paul does to Peter in Galatians and Matthew's chapter 18. So you see, there are different circumstances, situations when it comes to reproving a brother or sister or even an elder in certain situations of life, and we need to be wise how to do these things. And like I said, I believe Matthew chapter 18, the essence of it, can be used in all of these, but there are certain regulations, certain ways Scripture instructs us to do these different situations when it comes to rebuking. It says witnesses. In other words, those who themselves can attest to the validity and credibility of the accusation. Why is that important? Because he's not talking about people who have been persuaded or convinced by the accusations and words of others. In other words, it's witnesses who can say, I've seen with my own eyes, not somebody that's been persuaded by, hey, Brother Greg, do you know what Brother Johnny did or know what the pastor did? He did, and the Greg's like, what he did? Well, I dare, I dare say that's not right. That's not a witness. You're perverting the truth. You're, you're leading somebody astray. Now, if Greg said, you know, I've seen the same thing. That's a witness. That's why we have to be careful with that, especially with an elder. And why so? Well, like an old preacher used to say, or did say, when you have somebody standing up who preaches the Word of God, who reproves, rebukes, exhorts with all long-suffering, it's going to be very easy for somebody to wish to accuse them. Because he's standing in the position not only of authority, but he's rebuking himself when he preaches. He reproves. And so men sometimes, because of pride, get angry of that. And they come up with accusations. And Paul said, no, because he's in the position of an elder, you make sure there's three, two or three witnesses, not people you persuaded to your opinion. And I say that because I've seen that done in many churches. I've experienced that myself, where people come together and they say something about me or another pastor, and I'll say, well, did you see that yourself? No, Brother So-and-so told me that. Well, you're wrong. That's not a witness. It's not a witness. So we need to understand that. Okay? And then, the third one, there's grounds for open rebuke, which we find in our text. So those three different categories we need to keep in mind. And again, like I said, Matthew 18, Matthew, even the second one of the elders with witnesses, and even the third, they all have an element of truth in them all, and we can all and should use an element of everything in those when it comes to reproving and rebuking or censuring a brother or sister in sin. Yet again, I emphasize the fact the goal is reconciliation and restoration and not destruction. Okay? That should be our goal, not personal satisfaction or gain. Okay? I withstood him, Paul said, to the face, to his face before them all. I mentioned it last week, but I say it again. Paul's rebuking of Peter and the others was out of love for the truth of the gospel as well as for the sinning and faulting brethren. He not only was desirous for the truth of the gospel, the integrity of the gospel, but he was concerned about Peter and the brethren leading others to fall in their same sinful manner. So Paul had that balance of not only wanting to preserve the integrity of the gospel, but also to help Peter and the others realize their faults. Look with me at Psalm 141. 
And I believe Paul's rebuke was taken very well, according to Scripture, from what we can tell. And Psalm 141 explains to us, I believe, why it was so well received. Psalm 141, verse 5. Let the righteous smite me. Those are strong words. Smite me. Let the righteous smite me. It shall be kindness, be a kindness, and let him reprove me. It shall be an excellent oil, which shall not break my head. It's not going to hurt me. It's not going to destroy me. Why? Because it's kindness. It's from a righteous man. For yet, my prayer also shall be in their calamities. It will not change my love for them. I still pray for them. I still regard them as a brother. Now, notice the description of him who smites the psalmist. It's important. It's not merely anybody, but he said, let the righteous, not one who seeks his own personal gain or interest, not out of arrogance or malice, but he said, let the righteous. There's the reason for that. Because it's the character of he who smites, beloved, which carries much weight when it comes to our truly receiving the correction or rebukes of others. It's his character. It's his conduct. His intents. That's why Paul, that's why the psalmist said, let the righteous. We would come a lot further in this area of rebuking and reproving a brother or sister in Christ if they understood that our motives and intentions were righteous. I have myself been faced with people who brought accusations against me and I would not hear them because I really truly believed that their intention, their motives were unbiblical and wrong. They were full of malice and anger and hatred. That's not a righteous man. When someone realizes and understands that the smiting that they're receiving comes from a righteous man or woman, they're much easier to receive that. They're not offended by that. Why? Because of his character. And many people today don't care about that. Well, it doesn't matter about my character. I'm right. The truth is all that matters. Well, it matters how you portray the truth, does it not? <laughs> we can browbeat people all day long with Scripture. doesn't make it right. The psalmist said the righteous. Let the righteous, not just any man. The prophet Micah, I loved his verse when he says, Hear the rod. And who hath appointed it? Do you see, you see the combination there? Uh, he exhorts us not only to hear the rod, for there is always a lesson in the rod of the righteous. If you know that rebuke's coming from a righteous man or woman, you know there's a lesson in that. I mean, even Spurgeon said himself, in every critic there's a truth. So the prophet says, hear the rod. There's a lesson in every rod if it comes from a righteous. There's a lesson in there. But also, he says, hear he who hath appointed it. Not only regards to God, but also hear he who hath appointed it. In what manner is he bringing the rod? Right? That's why I say, like I said when I started, I, I believe this... If we handle reproving and rebuking brothers and sisters in sin and fault 
in a scriptural manner, I believe we'd save ourselves from so much divisions and schisms. But there's so many offended brothers and sisters who you can't reach anymore because they've been offended, either by the one trying to rebuke or they took the rebuke wrongly. So it's both sides of the fence. We not only know how, must know how to rebuke biblically, we must also know how to receive rebuke biblically. It's both sides. Solomon says, it shall be kindness. And let him reprove me, it shall be an excellent oil, which shall not break my head. It's not going to destroy me. It's not going to hurt me. It's not going to offend me. And I love the latter part, for yet my prayer also shall be in their calamities. My love shall not be changed for them. My love. And do you know what? Many times after rebuke or reproving, if it's done by a righteous man and if it's done biblically and scripturally, and if it's received properly, it even enhances and strengthens the bond between brothers and sisters. Do you know that? As iron sharpeneth iron. Look at Proverbs chapter 27. I'll read a few scriptures here in regards of this. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5 and 6. Listen, the wise man, open rebuke is better than secret love. Oh, how many churches, how, how often has the division started because of secret love, brothers and sisters not being willing to openly rebuke or approve a brother? It grows like cancer, and then before long, the church is split, and the problem's so big and huge, they can't deal with it anymore. Faithful, verse 6, are the wounds of a friend. But the kisses, <laughs> the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Do you know Judas' kiss was deceitful? He betrayed him with a kiss. Yet the wounds Peter received from Christ's rebuke. Remember when the Lord rebuked him? They were the faithful wounds of a friend. Big difference. Look in Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9. In verse 8. Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Watch this. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. You know why? A wise man knows that he has many failures and weaknesses and infirmities. He knows that he's not a perfect man. And that he's always in need of reconciliation and forgiveness from Christ. He's aware that he has many weaknesses and failures. And when a brother reproves him, he loves him the more because he cares for his soul. You know when, when and where and how I got the greatest assurance of my salvation? Was not my soul being flooded with visions of heaven and eternity and glory. It's when I denied a brother the use of my vehicle, because I just bought it, it was new, and he wasn't very gentle with vehicles, wrecked a few of them, 
And I told him no for a missions work. I said, no, you can't have my car. I went home and I fell on my knees and I felt bad and I thought, God, I'm a miserable, wicked, vile brother that I could even do something like that. And suddenly, assurance of salvation flooded my soul because I thought, God, if you didn't love me that much, you wouldn't have chastened me that hard. But because you love me, you chasten me. And I'm telling you, when we rebuke or approve a brother as righteous men and women, their love for us will increase because we know that we have need of such a thing at times. And so we're not resentful or hateful. He will love thee. What do you think after the Lord told Peter that he would deny him three times? And he did. When he met Peter the third time after arising from the dead, he asked Peter three times, Lovest thou me? Lord, you know I love you. Lovest thou me? Lord, you know. And then he almost got upset. He said, Lord, you know, you know that I love thee more than all these. Though Peter had fallen and wept bitterly, he loved him even more. My, if the church could feel and experience the love for the wounds of a friend, it would strengthen our unity and not destroy it. One more verse, Proverbs chapter 28. Verse 23. Now listen to this, because I believe we've all at some time, hope, I think, have experienced this. I have. Proverbs 28, verse 23. Listen to the words of the wise men. He that, he that rebuketh a man afterwards shall find more favor than he that flattereth with the tongue. He that rebuketh a man, that word afterwards is important. What's that mean afterwards? Well, some rebukes are at first stroke painful and they strike deep within the heart. And it's hard for us to bear it. At first, our nature, our flesh, rises up. But the wise man here in Proverbs says, a wise man will afterwards consider. He'll think about that. Sometimes it takes a little longer for it to sink in. A wise man will afterwards consider that. And he will find them loving and faithful wounds of a friend. And he'll say, no, that's more favorable than if you flattered me with your tongue. I thank you for that. And I've experienced that myself, and I'm sure you have, where at first it struck deep and I was offended, and my flesh wanted to rise up. Yet the more I thought about it, the more the Holy Spirit convicted me and showed me my wrong. And I publicly, on one occasion, I recall from the pulpit, apologize for my being incorrect because a brother rebuked me. And I'm telling you, it brought me such great peace and joy. And I so loved the brother. And believe me, my prayers for them did and were enhanced. Sometimes we don't receive it at first. But a wise man will think, he'll consider and he'll say, I'd much rather have that than the flattering of the tongue. You see, so Paul was right in openly rebuking Peter before them all. 
And as far as we can tell from Scripture, there's nowhere that says Peter resented that, nor the other brethren. As far as we can tell, and as a matter of fact, throughout the book of Galatians, Paul talks or explains how believers can fall. In Galatians chapter 1, he said, you've been moved away from that gospel. In Galatians 3, he said, who has bewitched you when you had Christ so evidently crucified before you, chapter 3, verse 1, some say that was the Lord's Supper, but I don't believe that. I believe it was the preaching of the cross was so strong and triumphant that they actually felt and knew Christ crucified before them. Like our brother said with the cross here in the neighborhood, it's not the cross, it's Christ being preached that was crucified before them. That was the power, not some symbol or picture or and the church of the Galatia fell into that. So throughout the book of Galatians, we see how believers, regardless of how strong they might be in faith, they can fall. We should be thankful. In closing, we should be thankful and praise God for faithful brothers and sisters who love us enough to tell us the truth in a manner which is loving, kind, even sometimes stern, yet in a manner which seeks our well-being and God's glory, we should be thankful that we have such loving brothers and sisters who we can honestly, truthfully say, they truly love me. And I'm sure I speak for everyone, but I've been in churches before to where I didn't know where a brother stood in regards to me. I didn't know whether they liked me or they hated me. I couldn't figure it out whether they were for me or against me. You can't build a church on that. You want to be able to say, brother, if you have something against me, if I've done something odd against you, if I've, if I've sinned, if I've fallen and fault or whatever, brother, I, I believe that you would come and tell me that. In John chapter 17, and I'll close with this verse. I want you to read it. Just read it with me because I, I, I so enjoyed this text. And the Lord's praying in John chapter 17 in regards to unity. I, I want you to read this text. John chapter 17, beginning verse 20. The Lord said, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them which also which shall believe on me through their word. What's he praying? That they all may be one. That they all may, that's the Lord's Prayer. It grieves me that so little is it paid attention to that. That they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one. There it is again, that they, the believers, may be one, even as we are one. They are, they're one like me and you. Is there differences between the Father and Son? Do they have arguments? No, they're one. That's the oneness Christ is praying for us. Now listen, what he says here in verse 30, 23. I and them, and thou and me, that they may be made perfect. Made perfect. In one. That's our Lord's Prayer. Let me tell you something. That is a unity. That is a oneness which our adversary, the devil, the accuser of the brethren, 
puts all his effort into disturbing, disrupting, and destroying. That's why many churches are weak because of divisions and schisms. It's not because we're not saying we need to love one another as Christ loved us. I believe a lot of it is because we don't know how to reconcile differences. And because we don't, we find more offended brothers and sisters. And I believe that causes great divisions in the church. It weakens us. The world should look at us and say, you know what, you love one another so much, not simply because you're hugging each other and showing love to one another, expressing, it's because you have so many differences and you can still find a way to reconcile those differences and stay as one. That is unbelievable because the world can't do that. Look at what they're doing. But you Christians have a way of always finding a way to peace and unity. By that we know you're Christ's disciples. Amen. May God give us grace here at Reformed Baptist Church and others who are listening that we might exercise the biblical, scriptural uh, instructions when we are faced with reproving or rebuking a sinful brother and sister. May we be able to rebuke scripturally and also receive it scripturally. So the Lord be glorified and our unity be strengthened. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, how it clears things up for us, how it helps us to see and understand, Lord, those things that are important for our Christian unity. Father, we're living a day and age where the church is in trouble everywhere. And, Lord, it's easy to say the church is in trouble. It's easy to, Lord, define the problems. It's easy to say, uh, Lord, what the issues are. Yeah, Father, help us here in Reformed Baptist Church not to begin with the worldwide problems. Help us, Lord, to stay focused on our church. Lord, that we can exercise these things amongst ourselves. And that, Lord, we might be lights here in our community that you've placed us in. That, Lord, the world might look at this small group of believers. Lord, they might not even only see the truth that we preach. But, Lord, may they see the love that we have for one another. That they might truly know that we're your disciples. May you be honored and glorified in all that we say and do. Be with us now as we partake of the Lord's Supper. We pray that you bless as only you can. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.